Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and it is our first episode of the brand new year. And I am so excited to kick off 2024 with Zach Stafford. Zach is a journalist. He is a contributor at MSNBC, the former editor-in-chief at The Advocate magazine. He hosts one of my very favorite podcasts, Vibe Check, along with friends of the show, Saeed Jones and Sam Sanders. Zach and I today get to talking about an alternate life he could have lived as a geography professor. We talk about the importance of place, his Tony Award for Strange Loop, and of course, the many, many books he loves, and the one classic that he and I both have absolutely never read. Zach will be back for the Stacks Book Club discussion of Erasure by Percival Everett on Wednesday, January 31st. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on today's episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. It is a new year, and if you're looking for ways to support your favorite creators, I would encourage you to support this podcast, The Stacks, over on Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash the stacks, you can join the stacks pack. You earn perks like bonus episodes, inside access, our Discord channel, We're doing a brand new mega reading challenge this year. We're having a lot of fun. Plus, by joining the Stacks Pack, you make it possible for me to make this independent podcast every single week. So if that sounds like something you want to support in this new year, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join us. Shout out to our newest members, Dorothy, Harmony Coleman, Jay Jones, Melissa R. Green, and Stella Edozomwan-Witt. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack. And thank you to the entire Stacks Pack. I'm very excited to start a whole nother year with all of you. All right. Now it is time for my conversation with Zach Stafford. All right, everybody. You heard the real intro. Here is the fun intro. We have had Sam Sanders. We have had Saeed Jones. We have even had a episode of Vibe Check play on this very feed, but we have not had the Tony Award winning editor, journalist, world's greatest human, Zach Stafford on the stacks until right this very minute. Zach, welcome to the stacks. Oh my God. Thank you. That was, (laughs) I'm so full from that. Thank you. That was the warmest Welcome I've ever gotten in my entire life. So well, thank you, Tracy. Welcome. It's so good to be here. <laughs> my audience has been harassing me. They're like, when is that coming on? I'm like, I <laughs> hope soon so that you'll stop yelling at me. So everyone That's... who has been waiting for Zach, here he is. 
I'm is here. here. And it, that's so nice because I have, like all of us, imposter syndrome for everything. And I do a show every <laughs> week called Vibe Check with two amazing people, Sam and Saeed. And when they told me about their experiences, because we met at a party. Like we didn't know each other first, but we met through Sam at a party. And Saeed had talked about you, but you were like this kind of mythological literary character in my life. And I thought only the greats <laughs> came on the show. And I was like, well, I'm not a great. So it's Saeed Jones. Like I don't compare. You're a great. And, um, and now I'm here. So thank you for having me. You're a great. And I'm so excited. <laughs> thank you. I am Glinda the Good Witch and I anoint you, Zach the Great. <laughs> Welcome you. to the podcast. Um, so I love for, it here. <laughs> oh, good. We love you. For people who don't know you and for you to not talk about your professional resume, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from, maybe a little bit about your relationship to books, but just sort of like, who's Zach Stafford? Yeah. So Zach Stafford is, when I first became a writer professionally, my bio was Zach Stafford is a Tennessee writer living in Chicago. I now no longer live in Tennessee or Chicago. I live in Los <laughs> Angeles. But those two places are really huge for me. In place has always been a huge part of my career in life. You know, growing up in the South, I was a book worm because I was the only black kid in my class. I was the only gay kid in my class. And um books were my place of refuge. So, you know, that's like reading, and that's why I'm so excited to be here, has shaped everything. And reading is what made me a better writer. Because mm -hmm. when I got to college, I was a like a huge reader and lover of books, but my writing wasn't great. And so many of my like English lit professors and my modern language professors would make me write essays and read them aloud to them. And so anyway, and I got to meet so many writers and it really inspired me. So eventually um, for my resume portion of this spiel, I became a journalist, surprisingly. I thought I was going to be a professor of geography, which is how much I love place. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted to be a, ge a geographer. Um, and I was really interested in all the beginning of my writing. People who've known me for a long time, the beginning of my writing was very much about grinder and geolocative apps like Tinder and the emergence of a digital self oh. on the internet and how we are existing simultaneously in a meat space and a cyberspace. And that like you, Tracy, have your digital self that currently is racking up bills on your Apple, you know, your Apple ID, you're right. living on Twitter, people are engaging with you, but you're also sitting here with me talking about, you know, our lives. So there's multiple there's a multiplicity of you in the world. So that was the beginning of my work was I was very interested in writing about that. At okay, wait, pause. Like, I have to ask. Yeah. I have to interrupt because I have to know. When you were interested in geography, were you interested in geography because of the online of it all? Or was that something that came to you later, like in your work? Because I know you were you worked at Grindr and you were sort of like in charge of that stuff. But when you were interested in geography, like growing up and even in college, did you were you thinking about geography in relationship to onlineness mm -hmm. or not yet? It began that way. So I, my first love of geography was the cartographic ways in which we think of it, maps. I thought maps were okay. so interesting. Mm. I studied them voraciously in middle school. I won my school's geography B. We had a geography B my Whoa. seventh grade year. And I what does that it. entail? It's um, describing uh, like country. So it would say something like, okay, what is a, a country in Southeast Asia that is bordered by Singapore, Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar. And the answer is Thailand. So they would ask you questions like that. We're Got like, it. Looking in this region of Africa, what are the countries that are all east of this area? Whatever. I so okay. I used to be so really good at, at that. that. I was really good at that. And I have, a, I think, a pretty photographic memory. But then it became about placemaking online because as I was growing up 
AOL chats were a huge part of my formation as a young sure person. Are. Sure and that's so much about place because the chat rooms were, you know, Tennessee gay, middle Tennessee chat or Tennessee Nashville right. chat. And so they're about the digital world very early on became about place making so that because it was so vast, you needed these cartographic kind of cardinal spots to place you. So anyway, so that's where it all began. And I had all these fake online boyfriends and I would create like <laughs> stories about myself because I wasn't out. So it just became this like kind of romance of writing about myself online. And that all intersected when Grinder launched into a career writing about it. And then I eventually I worked at Grinder too. So it's okay. Very- I love this. I cut you off. So then you went to Grindr and then you were going to go do a, a whole new pivot about your next part of your career. But I was oh, yeah. too curious about geography. No, it's okay. So anyway, so beginnings geography, geography. Um, I was writing about Grindr. I was writing about love online. My very first column was at the Chicago Tribune and I was literally hired to be the Carrie Bradshaw for Chicago, but gay. I will never forget my editor asking me to do that. And um, and that became so much about like place and all these things. Um, and then eventually I became an investigative reporter at The Guardian, which is very much motivated by uh, the Black Lives Matter movement erupting and being entangled in it without realizing like all my friends were the people that went to Ferguson. And I didn't right. go to Ferguson. I, I wrote about it from Chicago. And then, you know, all of our lives changed that summer, right. uh, at that time in 2013. And then from there, my life just kept going down this journalistic path. <laughs> it kept getting further and further away from geography. And then I wound up at Grindr because they said, could you build us a magazine using our geography uh, technology? And, um, and then that's where I was at. So for years, I was working in media, news. And then in the pandemic, I pivoted to producing and I made and I helped make a musical on Broadway, and that's where the Tony in my my like bio comes from, which is the most random thing because great. I never wanted to be a theater producer, and now I do a lot of theater producing, so it's a big. Well, I was a theater change. major, so having a Tony Award is like a huge fucking deal to me. You're the <laughs> second Tony Award winner on this podcast, to my knowledge. Oh my god. Um. Yeah, because we had Ali Stroker on who won a Tony for Best Supporting mm-hmm. Actress in a Musical. She and I went to NYU together. And Shut up. I know, she's amazing. She's amazing. I, and I know Michael twice. Jackson. Yep, there we go. Yes, you do. I choreographed <laughs> Michael's musical Only Children in college that has Tony Award winner Brandon Uranowitz in it yep. and like all of these fantastic people. Um, so I know and love a strange loop. I have, Michael was working on a strange loop when we were doing only children. Like I remember him being like, it's a show about Usher who's Mm -hmm. an Usher because his name's Michael Jackson. And so he, you know, anyways. Um, so while the Tony award might be the most random thing to you, it is probably the most important thing to me about you. That's Thank you. Your arbitrary award. Thank you. My arbitrary. And it's, it's so, and what's so funny, and maybe we can talk about this is like, I love theater growing up so much, but theater, similar to like my place in Tennessee, my place in literature, my place in journalism, I never saw myself in any of these things in like a big way. So I didn't think it was all possible for me. So I never leaned in. And then I was dragged into certain things like journalism wasn't a a full choice. It was a door that opened and I said, what's behind this door? And then it became a thing. Theater also became that too. And it's really amazing because I get to meet people like you who are like, no, no, girl, we exist here. We have been. (laughs) here for a long time it's not a new thing so Uh, I love it um if you I mean it's so interesting hearing you talk about like your career and like being dragged into it because you were the editor-in-chief at the advocate Mm -hmm. I was yeah if you weren't if you didn't get dragged in the direction of journalism Mm -hmm. and I guess theater but what what do you think you would be doing like what is the thing that you what like I know you said you maybe wanted to be a geography per professor but do you think that's what you would have done or do you think that there's somewhere else you could see yourself in a parallel universe 
Oh my God. That's such a good question. Um, I think, you know, there's a version of me that, you know, went to grad school, will finish. I started and then didn't finish. And, uh, <laughs> but there's a part of me that is now would be talking to you as a geographer at some university, hopefully, you know, trying to get on a tenure track, writing <laughs> essays, trying to publish stuff. And that feels very real to me because there are many academics in my family. My mom mm. is a neuroscience researcher. My stepdad's, you know, a psychologist. It's just like, there's just my uncle was a, as an optometrist, but did research at Vanderbilt. And a lot of my family worked at Vanderbilt. So I just grew up around a lot of academics. So academia always felt like very accessible in many ways to me, um, especially seeing my mom go back to school later in life and accomplish what she did and then enter. I was like, well, you know, my mom can do this. I can, I can figure this out. Um, but besides that, the dream jobs when I was growing up was I wanted to be a fashion designer. That was like the big, that was the huge dream. I used to, I used to read all the time as a kid. Like I literally, there was a moment in my life where I read, I tried to read a book a day. Like, that was, like, my obsession. I was, like, can I read a book a day? It was, like, Steinbeck poetry. Like, Whoa. For, yeah. How old were you? <laughs> I was, like, 11, 12. I thought I you like, were going to be, like, it was, like, a five-page chapter book. You no, know, like, no. like, a little, like, picture book. <laughs> Not no, I'd be Steinbeck. Like, yeah, I was, like, Steinbeck, Austin. I could read Jane Austen really fast. Um, but um, I was obsessed with reading. And when I wasn't reading, I was uh, reading books. I was reading fashion magazines. And when I wasn't reading fashion magazines, I was sketching outfits specifically dresses and I love the style network and the fashion channels and I would just watch runway shows and you know and that's where I think like geography has always been a huge part of my life is because I felt out of place Mm. where I lived Mm -hmm. and I felt like I should be in New York I felt like I should be in Paris so there was always this tension of where I was and where I felt emotionally I should be and the internet helped bridge that early on because I got to project myself into these places through you know, a dot com. Um, but um, yeah, back then, you know, I really wanted to be that. And then that became f- fashion, became food. And I literally, there was like, um, when I was 18, I literally was working in food. I I did a competition called the uh, Top Teen Chef competition where I flew okay. to Chicago and I competed uh, on camera for a scholarship. God, you have so many talents. I know. It's like somebody, <laughs> it's just, I'm just really gay. I like no clothing. I know food. <laughs> I know literature, like it's like I'm just gay. Um, but uh, I, <laughs> I hate to listen to that. But um, I, um, I thought I was going to work in food for a while, and then it all kind of stopped. But um, I think through all of that, writing was always so important because even when I was working on food, I was like, I want to write a cookbook, and I was working on one with my grandmother that was about recipes oh. passed through our family, and I was like 18. So story when I yeah. hit my 20s, was always central to everything I did. And that's why, you know, I work in theater now because it's story-based as well. It's so interesting. Like, I'm listening to you talk about all these things you're interested in. And, like, I think because you started with geography, I'm just he- hearing about how all of these things are really place-based mm-hmm. and story-based. It's like you were into geography because you were interested in like the relationship of people to places. And then fashion is like totally a place-based art and food is such a place-based thing. And I just, it's so interesting hearing you talk about that because when I was like researching you and like preparing and I saw your job at Grindr, I was like, that's such a weird random job. But now I'm like, oh my God, that's the job that makes more sense than any job he's ever had. Like It it just like totally clicks in my brain. And and another thing, and this is what Sam Sanders always says about you, and I experienced when I emailed you to come on the show, he always says you're such a connector. He's like, Zach is the connector. He's like capital C, always connecting people. And 
when I emailed you, I was like, hey, Zach, I don't know if you remember, but we met at this party. I'd love to have you come on. And you were like, yes, of course I remember. It was so great. We talked about you on the podcast today. Also, I always see you on Shane's page, blah, blah, blah. And Shane's one of my really good friends. And I literally thought to myself, I was like, he is such a connector because he <laughs> took all of the little pieces that we have in common mm-hmm. and connected them and like put them out for me. And I'm just like, I guess the question is there is like, what, what is the connecting piece to you that's important? Or like, why do you think that you always strive to do that? And I'm sure there's some geography, something oh, in sure. there. But like, what is like, how do you be, yeah. how do you become a connector? I think connection has everything to do with being seen and being authentically mm. seen. I like to think that I have a ability that is probably special in that like I've really tried to hone it over years um, of, you know, paying witness or creating space to be a witness to people's lives and and really taking that as truth. Like when someone tells me something, and that's what got me into journalism. I believe so much in truth telling. I was like, how you're talking about your experience as a black trans woman trying to survive in sex work, which is like stuff I used to write about a lot. Like that is truth and that should be the beginning of this conversation. And I think a lot of times when people have conversations with each other, they're really, you know, playing this game of like, I want you to ask me a question. I want to say something about myself. Yeah. And I, due to my own, you know, trauma, upbringing, whatever, um, I grew up around a lot of people who didn't ask me a lot of questions. So I always felt like not very seen. And I felt mm-hmm. as a black person in a very, you know, white space and a queer person in a very straight space, you know, not seen, but stereotyped a lot. So I felt this tension in my life all the time. So, so whenever... What I learned to do to get through that is to find people that did see me and then also accepted me. And from there, I saw this power in myself because I saw how more confident I became when someone gave me space to be myself or someone gave me space to share my story and said, that's true, I believe you, um, that I wanted to you know, reflect that back. So whenever I'm connecting people, and this happens so much, it's my attempts in real time to tell the other person, not only do I see you, but I want you to ha- be other people that remind me of you, that you should that you should know, that you should be in community with, that I think you guys could do something great together. And that's where just the the fuel for it comes. Because it, it's so annoying because Sam does bring it up all the time. But it's annoying because <laughs> how true it is. And I didn't have the language. I didn't think of myself as a connector before. Yeah. I always thought of myself as like, there's Zach, just busybody, knows too many people, and it's just passing people off. But I do think there's like an art to bringing people together. And there's even a book that I've been reading that's called The um, the Art of Gathering. It's actually oh, right in front of me. That's like yeah. my, one of my favorite books. She did the uh, show. Priya Parker. She did? Genius. Oh my God. But yeah, so I've read it like you. three times. I love it so much. So that's like my shit. Like that is me. Like it's like intentionality. Why are we together? Why are we sharing space? What do we do with this energy that we're pulling from each other? And um, yeah, so that's where it just comes from. And I get like so much joy. And I think out of everything I've done in my life, it's it's always like it's story driven, but it's also connection driven. um, Because you know, being an editor-in-chief was really about putting pieces together. It was right. someone pitching me, I want to do a story on the border of the U.S., Mexico, and Tijuana. Okay, great. How are you getting there? Who's going to be a photographer? Who's going to edit this? Who's going to shoot the photos? How? Are, when are we going to release it? What's, right. Who's the audience for this? It was all about, like, putting together these packages and then delivering it to the world. And um, 
Yeah. And that's where the connection part comes from. And I love it. And I will always be this way till I die, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'm, I am a connector. I don't know if I'm quite as a connector as you. I don't think I know as many people as you, but I, you're speaking my language because I do love to be like, oh, I know a person who you should talk to about mm-hmm. that. Or like, oh, like I just, and I don't, I don't know why I do it. I think it's just because I am a busybody. <laughs> like I just it's like, also oh. a great, it's a great funnel for anxiety. If you're an anxious yeah. person, yes. you can then, and then you're also, you do become the dark side of this is you become beloved quickly by helping someone by saying, yeah. Hey, I got yeah. someone for you. And then they're like, Oh my God, you're amazing. You helped me yeah. with something. And you're like, oh, yeah. thank you. Now you don't hate me, which is my biggest fear in life is that you're going to hate me. <laughs> well, I'm scared that people are going to hate me, but I also have come to terms with the fact that people hate me. Like oh, I, 100%. like I'm pretty hateable. I understand. Like either you love me or you really don't like me. And I finally like come to terms with that. For me, like when you can like, or like when you have like a dinner party and you get the right group of people mm-hmm. together oh, yeah. and I'm like, Oh, I'll like, after everyone leaves, I'll turn to my husband and be like, I fucking nailed the guest list on this one. one. Like, I'm like, wow, we are kindred. Like yeah, that is I'm fully, like, <laughs> yes. I'm like, I, yeah. I, a big judge for me is, um, and if friends are listening to this when this comes out, they're going to laugh because I was in Chicago the other day and we sat at a table and a f- very dear friend's boyfriend asked, how did all, of, how does everyone know each other? And everyone was like, Zach. Zach. And it was over like a decade. Everyone was like, Zach is literally the, the linchpin. But what I love about that is that I was the beginning, but I'm not the end. These people right. become better friends. They have a deeper, more soulful connection than I have with them. Even my own partner sometimes has better relationships with people I've known for a yeah. decade than I do. And I take, take so much joy in that because I'm like, yeah. oh, then I was a bridge. You two should know each other. Like I don't yeah. need to have the best relationship with everybody, but I think everyone deserves a best friend. And I yeah. would love to set people up. Oh, I love that so much. That's so funny. My best friend, her partner, um, we all knew each other growing up in high school or whatever. And I became friends with him better in college. And then they started dating like a few years ago. And when people ask them how they know each other, she tells the true story, but he says it's through me. And I'm like, it's not through me, but I love that you think that it's through me. Like, I'm like, actually, this is how you guys met, blah, blah, blah. Like, Because I have one of those memories where I remember every detail. Oh, and every time same. he says it, I'm like, it's not true, but like... It's fine. I'll take it. And you have to let, I mean, Tracy, you're saying something important. Sometimes how people remember stories or to quote Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories to stay alive. Like don't challenge someone's story. Like let them just have it if it doesn't really rock the boat too much. Yeah. It makes me feel good. It makes you feel right. It's fine. Um, Okay. I want to know, well, I guess you sort of talked about this a little bit, but what I really liked about you the first time we met and just talking to you now and listening to you on the podcast is I feel like you're like a very fun person. You seem like a very good hang, like we could have a good time. But then I look at like all your bylines and I look at your body of work and I'm like, Zach is a very serious journalist. Like Zach is like cover, like you wrote a piece on O'Shea Sibley, like you're writing about serious shit in American life, black life, queer life, the intersection of those things. Is it ever hard for you to square Zach, the person, with Zach, the byline journalist Mm -hmm. guy? Oh, my God. It used to be such an issue. So I feel like today in the past few years, I don't write as much. Like now I'll do like a piece or two a year. So the past few years it's been, you know, the New York Times had me do a feature in the real estate section about Fire Island and issues in Fire Island, which to your point was like, I'm this fun, loving guy that people probably have met in Fire Island. But yeah. Then I write this like definitive piece in the Times <laughs> yeah. about how racism and housing are in crisis there. And geography, Fire and geography, Island, location. About, place, yeah, about location, yes. <laughs> yes, it's just. And then like even O'Shea Sibley, you know, I'm a huge Beyonce fan and went to so many of her shows. But then someone gets murdered in New York City. 
and I'm the f- I write about it and uh, very quickly because I just had to like jump to it because it felt very authentic to me. And that was also about place because O'Shea was murdered miles away from her as she was performing. And for me, it was like such a tragedy of place right, and who right. can be in place, like a, a like a show like Beyonce's, and then who can't? And what happens when you're not in that place? Um, so when I was younger, though, at the height of my you know, really serious investigative journalism. Like my, and I used to be at The Guardian. That was for like three years. And I was an opinion columnist at first. I just being a columnist is super fun because I just write my opinion and you create all these like wars online. It used to be really fun to be on Twitter and that was great. Then I moved into really hard news and doing things around, you know, murders, police brutality, traveling. I would be on murders. It was really heavy. And like people who knew me back then just saw the the tension building of I'm so happy, so go, happy-go-lucky, but like the work was really draining me. And I'd be at these dinner parties and people would be like, what do you do? And I'd be like, well, today I was at a prison. And, this, <laughs> and it was just like so contradictory to how I present it. And um, so it was really complicated for me. And I felt really like, I didn't feel like a real journalist because I was really nice. I felt like a fake journalist because when I had like a young person, if I was doing a story, like I remember doing a story in Kansas City about this young man named Deontay Green. And I was 25, I think at the time. And um, he was murdered. And I was with his mom and I was sitting in her bed and we were talking about it. And I just like held her hand. And I remember being like, I'm not a real journalist because I'm holding her hand. But I was like, I am a real journalist because I'm actually bearing, bearing witness to this. So it just right. felt like this constant back and forth. And I was a bit too me in everything. And I think that's what I've just accepted these days where, you know, we're all complicated. I can be super fun, make a borderline inappropriate joke, but also let there be a very serious thing arise. And I can rise to meet the occasion. It's kind of like I used to, when I was at Grinder, I used to tell our newsroom all the time when they'd be like, well, why are we doing? Cause when I was at Grindr, we launched a magazine that was really journalistically, I think really amazing. Like we did things that other queer magazines weren't doing. And that's why I eventually went to the advocate. And, um, people would say like, why does Grindr do news? And I would be like, well, similar to Playboy, Playboy once upon a time did real news. Right. They had a correspondent in the white house that would do reporting from there. And I think we as people are complicated. You can be horny and also want to read something and like vice versa and on and on. So I think like, you know, I've just learned to to hold all those multitudes of myself and not make myself feel bad about it because I also I'm very conscious of people meet me and they're probably like, this is probably a PR gay or a marketing gay because I'm so happy. (laughs) They're like, oh, wow. He's like, I've like literally moderated a presidential debate in the 2020 race. And it's like, oh, no, he's like gone like head to head with like our now presidents or people who've run for president. So it's kind of, it's fun. I like it. It's like a it's very queer it. life. <laughs> I love it because I feel like you are like, I, you're someone that I trust because I feel like I know you're going to do a good job, but also I know you're not going to be like too hoity-toity or like, no. I'm not going to, like, I know that you're accessible to me. And I feel like that's probably why a lot of people like you and like your work is it's like, you're going to get the hard hitting news but you're going to get it in a way that like meets you where you are. Um, And I, and I just really appreciate that about your work. And like, also when you guys talk on vibe check, like that's like my favorite thing about the show is you guys give real serious, you know, Mm -hmm. consideration to these issues, but you do it in a way that I'm like, these are my friends. Yeah. 
It's like, because like you're, I think it gives weight to your humanity that you're a person moving to the world that watches horrible news all day, sees the market zipping, right. imagines the most awful futures for your, your children and family. Um, but you also like want to laugh. But you, you also like, like the new Jack Harlow. But you like, like the new Jack Harlow. Like you like you contain all of this at once. And I think I got tired of being in the machine. And Sam went through this machine too of right. you know the formal journalism training of you got to talk a certain way, be a certain way. When I was like, it doesn't have to be delivered this way. We can like literally kiki, and I can tell you the world's ending. The world's right. still going to end. Like right. it doesn't matter how I deliver. <laughs> right. Well, that's how this show came to be. Is like I want to talk about books, but I don't want to be the fucking New Yorker. Like yeah, exactly. Like, like it just every, like yeah. Yeah, it just the air gets so thin when you're up there and it just is not it's not fun and it's I mean it's why I stopped doing academia because I re- I remember so clearly I published my first academic article it was called The Power of the Queer Queen it was a super queer theory jargon heavy bullshit type of writing thing that I used to do right. and my mom who's brilliant one of the smartest people I know read it and she said to me I have no idea what you're talking about and I Ooh. thought is that my future writing things that my mother won't even understand. Right. And I took that article and published a piece on Thought Catalog when that was a thing called The Five Men You Meet on Grinder." And that was <laughs> my first blog. And I took all that theory and brought it into practice in an accessible way. And I think, like, that's why I love your show and I love so many other piece, uh, shows that our friends do. Because, like, how do we take literature? How do we take theory? How do we take news and make people feel comfortable engaging with it? And, yeah. and that's what we need more of. I love it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Okay, we are back with our segment called Ask the Stacks, where somebody writes in, they send an email to Ask the Stacks at the stackspodcast.com and they tell us what they're looking for in a book. And normally I prepare, but today I completely forgot. So I just read this question for the first time right before we started and I have not put my predictions down or my suggestions down. So we'll do it together. We each have to give like one. I'll give three. You'll give one to three, whatever you want. Okay. Um, and it's a really short one. It comes from Mary and Mary said, I would love some recommendations for narrative nonfiction written by women. Narrative nonfiction written by women. Yeah. So is that memoir contained? I, so, okay. I don't consider narrative nonfiction memoir, though okay. some people do. I consider narrative nonfiction like nonfiction that has like a story, but maybe isn't like history. Mm-hmm. Like, like sometimes true crime can fall in that category. Mm-hmm. Like, did you read like Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe? Like a book I like that. But I know okay. what you're talking about. Like that kind of book. That's like what I think of as narrative nonfiction. There is an argument to be made that memoir is narrative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I think like me- memoir plus when it's like a memoir, but they're talking about a bigger thing. I would consider that narrative nonfiction. But the categories in literature are so vague because they're really just for marketing. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, whatever this marketing person at Penguin Random House decides is whatever, that's what it is. That's what's going to happen. I can go first if you want. I'm trying to think. Yes, I would love that because I'm going to make sure that the book I'm thinking of is. Okay. Okay. So the first one that comes to my mind is the book that I'm currently reading. I have not finished this. So Mary, it might suck, but I'm, I'm into it so far. It's called Trail of the Lost by Andrea Lankford. And Andrea is a former park ranger and she is following three lost hikers on the Pacific Crest Trail, which is the same hike that Cheryl Strayed did. And they all disappeared. And she was a recovery park ranger, like in all these different parks. And she said, you know, she's never had cases where the bodies were never found if they died. And she's like, in these three cases, in a few months, they never found any of these guys. And so she's like following their trail. She's trying to figure out what happened. She's telling you about parks. She's sort of giving you this bigger picture of the Pacific Crest Trail, but also going in on these three guys. So that's my first recommendation. My second recommendation is my favorite book of 2023, which was We Were Once a Family by Roxana Asgarian, which is the story of the Hart family murders, which is phenomenal. And I've talked about it at length and Roxana was on the show. Uh, but it's about the two white women who adopted the six black children and then drove them off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And she <sighs> digs into the book and she really gives you like a tender and loving look at the children and also their birth families. And then she also explains to you about family separation, specifically in Texas, but also more broadly in the country and how these systems work. It's just a phenomenal book. Um, and then the last one I'm going to give you 
is the other book I'm reading right now. I, I love narrative nonfiction. What can I say? <laughs> it's called Punished for Dreaming by Bettina Love. And the subtitle is How School Reforms Harm Black Children and How We Heal. And so she's talking about charter schools. She's talking about reform schools. She's talking about the ways that children, black children, have been treated in school systems. And she uses her own story and she starts sort of with like uh, Brown versus Board and how that took black teachers out of schools. And she brings it all the way up through the present and she names names. She's like Ronald Reagan, this motherfucker. And then she's like telling you each person who fucked up, who did stuff that harms kids. She talks about like the way that athletics are kind of lorded over children. And they're like, oh, you're here just to play sports. So you need to take these easy classes. And it's just this really powerful sort of scathing book and I and I'm really liking it. Okay, you are so good at this. <laughs> I do it every day. I, I'm just like as I'm going through everything. I'm like, that's a memoir. That's a memoir. That's it's okay. A Give a memoir. Give a. You can I was like, do oh, like I was like, what can I pull from Joan Didion because she's such a reporter of a person, but it's like essays that are guiding you through yeah. American life. So that doesn't feel like a narrative that's taking us through the whole right. thing. Um, what is something? If there's a memoir you love, though, I feel like that can fit. A lot of people consider memoir narrative nonfiction. Yeah. Oh, I I think this works. Okay. I th- I'm going to say it works. Yeah. Um, it. I want to pick Audre Lord, the Cancer Journals. Yeah. Where she works. writes about fighting cancer, but cancer and how it impacts Black women and their experiences with the medical system and her own body and power. And I think she was living in the Caribbean at the time when she was writing this in Saint Lucia. I think. I remember right, um, but it's just a really stunning way in which you use, um, you know, a personal experience to tell the larger structural story of what Black women are experiencing. Um, that definitely counts. The work. Okay, there we go. That counts, that counts. <laughs> um, Mary, if you read any of these books, let us know what you think, and everyone else at home, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com so you can get your recommendations because we're running low, so I need them. So send them to me. Um, Okay, now we're going to talk about Zach's taste in books. We always start here. Oh, two books you love, one book you hate. Okay, so two books I love. One would be Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. It just feels like home in many ways, even though it has a tragic ending. Yeah. Um, I just I just love that book so much. And it, it was my introduction to James Baldwin, who, of course, you know, all of his work has profoundly shaped me. But I don't know. That was one of the first books where I was like, okay, this is gay and I love it. Um, <laughs> and it's about France and all these other things. And then another book that I'm going to put up there is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Oh. It used to be like now, I mean, out of everything I read today, not so much, but a book that has withstood right. the test of time for me and was a refuge as a young person um, was amazing. And I would read the book and then watch the BBC miniseries all the time as a kid. And I was just, again, very gay. So those are the two I love. The one that I hate was surprising that I remember today. Um, and I chose it because I did feel this huge amount of anger when I remembered it. But it's the book, The Art of the Deal by Donald Trump. Oh. And why I dislike that book beyond obviously his politics and things he's done and the circus that is him running again right. is that it was the only book my dad, I think, ever read really in his life. My dad's not a big huh. reader. Got it. And my dad is a black man from the South and just found so much inspiration from a book that I was like, even at a young age when he made me read it when I was a, young, a teenager, I was like, this isn't for us. Like, we're not the same type of man as this man who says yeah. things like, Dream big to go big. 
take risks, listen to your gut. Like the 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 advice the advice is like not very amazing. It's just yeah. like if you're really rich and have connections, do whatever the fuck you want. Right. So I just really resented that book, and I've always resented um, that my father admired that book so much because it felt like that was the fuel that led us to you know him become president was. People really love that book for some reason. And I hate that book. <laughs> I love this answer. I think you're the first person to say this book on the show. Oh, great. I great. love it. Um, what kind of reader are you now as an adult? I read. I wish I read more. I used to read so, so much. Now it feels like it's for work, which I don't love. Like mm-hmm. I do miss the days in which I wasn't paid to talk to people about their books or write about their books um, (laughs) because it used to be less stressful because now I think I read differently when I'm going through a book if I'm about to be in a conversation with somebody. But what I really love just because I grew up, you know, on the internet and being friends with so many writers that have become huge players like Asai Jones, like a rock singer, all these people I remember when I was like 21 emailing with them about things. Um, is that I can look when I walk into bookstores now, and I also was an editor for so many years, so I know so right. many writers. I walk into bookstores and I know so many people who yeah. are publishing, and it makes me so hyped because I get to read their memoirs, their essay collections, their their fiction. So I, I really like love my friends' work or people mm-hmm. I've read online who have now created a work that's gone bigger. So so that's where my reading goes. Is that like uh, I see, yeah, I see a friend publishing. I'm going to read the book. <laughs> I love that. What's the last really great book you've read? The last really great book I read. I would say In the Wake by Christina Sharp, which I talk a lot about on Vibe yeah. Check. It just really has impacted me in a way that I hadn't felt in a while. It reminded mm-hmm. me of being... 19 in college again, of reading mm. Judith Butler or Bell Hooks for the first time. Yeah. And just being overwhelmed with how someone makes so much sense of my own body in the world. Yeah. Um, so that book is really, and it's the one I keep, you know, offering to people, sending to people, begging people to to, to read. I still um, haven't read it. Oh, it's so good. You have to read <laughs> I haven't read it. So, I know. I read the so new. I read the new one, Ordinary Notes. Yes, and it's really good. Have you read that one weird. too? I've started it. I've not finished that one yet. But Saeed yeah. got me on that one because I was like, "In the wake, in the wake." He's like, "Girl, there's a whole new book." Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> Where you been? <laughs> I was like, sorry, I missed that. <laughs> what are you reading right now? And do you read multiple books at a time? I completely read multiple books at one time. It's a problem because I'll carry a book in my backpack at all times, and then I'll okay. like buy something or get something else. Um, right now I am reading um, The Art of, of Gathering. That's literally what I'm reading. Reading is usually sitting right in front of me and yeah. that's what's right in front of me um, okay. by Priya Parker. And I'm also, <laughs> I feel like I'm like, uh, you know, breaking news potentially, but I'm reading um, Erasure by. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, You're not breaking news. People yeah. <laughs> will know that that's our book club pick for this month um, when you, when they hear this, but yes, okay, Erasure great. by Percival Everett. And you've seen the movie. I've seen the movie. I've seen the movie first, which I kind of sometimes love. I love seeing a, sometimes a movie before the book. Um, and I've seen the movie. I've known Cord Jefferson for a long time now, the director and writer. And uh, and it's a really phenomenal movie that is going to most likely be up for Best Picture of the Oscars, which is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so you saw it first and then you're reading it. I'm going to read it first and then see the movie. So I got to okay. read it soon so that I can see it before we talk so that we can have the... Yeah, the combo. You know, the conversation. 
Who do you turn to to pick a book? Do you go on the internet? Do you go to a book review? Are there friends that you trust? Like, how do you decide what to read next? I mean, I go to Site Jones. (laughs) He reads so much. He's always reading, always looking. So um, I go to him. I, you know, I listen for friends of mine on their podcasts or shows that I listen to to bring up a book that's coming out. Or I get pitched a lot of books still too. So, you know, whenever that comes in, I do read these kind of excerpts and that guides me, which sometimes isn't the the best way because that's a publicist pushing you. But right. um, it's really like through my personal network of friends, like friends, whenever a friend tells me they're reading something, I take that as a big deal because I feel like people don't read very much anymore. So sure. if someone's like, I'm obsessed with this book, then I will probably buy the book immediately and then try to read it uh, eventually. Can you think of any book that you've really loved that someone recommended to you that wasn't Saeed Jones? Yes. <laughs> my friend Marcus, who surprised me with this one, um, recommended and sent me the book. It's called The Science of Storytelling, Why Stories Make Us Human and How to Tell Them Better. And it's a scientific approach to storytelling. And it talks about how the brain actually loves repetition and story and how story actually fuels our own sense of the world around us from a a brain level. And um, my mom is a neuroscientist. So like brain, anything that I can find to be a bridge between her right. and my stepdad is great. And this book became that for me. And it just is a really beautifully accessible scientific way of thinking of story. I love that. Okay. What's a book that you like to recommend to other people? What's a book I like to recommend to other people? I, for, <laughs> I recommend this book a lot and I feel bad because it's really annoying I think at some level but it's this book called Cruising Utopia by Jose Esteban Munoz he's a queer theorist he died I think a decade ago he's at NYU but it's about um it's kind of the canonical text today of where queer theory is at um and he uses popular media to talk about it people like Kevin Aviance who was the person in Beyonce's uh, new album that she pulled from to create those beats. He's writing about a lot of that music that she's inspired by to talk about what it means to be queer today. Um, But it's a book I've given to so many queer friends of mine, academics. There was even a moment where I gave it to a painter and he created an entire series based off this and then did a portrait of me, um, which was very weird. I'd never given someone a book and then they created a whole series right. of paintings. <laughs> so That's it was a so very cool. impactful book. Um, but it kind of has this, for me, it, it has this one note in it that I always think about. And it says, queerness is not here yet. And it's about qu- being queer in America, queer in the world. is kind of like looking at a North Star. Like it's always a place that you're looking to, but you'll never get there. And it's always changing and moving. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a lot of comfort because it always felt, when I first got the book, that being queer felt very stagnant, felt like it was a box you checked and then it was over and it didn't feel that way. But, but right. it was academically how people were talking about it. You come out of the closet, you you identify as gay. But I was like, I feel like my identity is always shifting and changing. And his book allows you to see that from like a really beautiful, like theoretical lens with some really great writing in there too. I love that. Okay. I'm hearing you talk about a lot of nonfiction, but your two favorite books were novels or the two books you loved were novels. So I'm wondering, what's your relationship to reading fiction versus nonfiction? It's, fiction for me feels like a, a like a nice vacation for my brain. Like it's okay. like a way in which I can like 
I feel like I read fiction like by the beach where I'm like Got diving it. into a book that um, that helps me go to another world. Um, I think just being a journalist, I find myself so drawn to nonfiction mm. and it helps me. I apply it to so many things in my life. I'm not saying fiction doesn't, but I feel like I love documentaries a lot. Yeah. I love unscripted television a lot. I love people so much that I like seeing them animated in their real lives. Um, but fiction is a place that I need to like work on, similar to working on like scripted projects or whatever. Right. I mean, strangely bit scripted, obviously, right. but like that was the first big scripted thing I did where I was like, right. but it felt nonfiction to me. It felt like my right, because it was ways. like auto fiction. Yes, exactly. Of. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I I'm a big nonfiction person, um, and I do read fiction, but not a ton. And I also am just really drawn to like true life stories, um, so I totally relate. What's your ideal reading setup? Where are you? Are there snacks and beverages? Time of day? Temperature? Any mm. of those kind of things. I've learned that I can't read with music that has words. So okay. I like a vibe. Like I like okay. like a lo-fi playlist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like can be any hotel bar in any part of the world. Um, I love reading by a pool a lot. Okay. Like I spent a lot of the summer in California finding pools or outdoor spaces to read and lay out. Um, so I really enjoy that. I don't love reading when I'm going to bed, I know that's a very popular thing for people to do because yeah. I get so inspired and my oh. brain just turns back on and I can't go to sleep. So I need to like zone out. But yeah, outside, nice music. Snacks and beverages? Pool. Oh, a glass of wine would be great. A cocktail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm into that. Yeah. I love the daydream. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite bookstore? Yes. And actually went there the other day. Uh, Women and Children First in Chicago. Oh, in Chicago. Of course. Yeah. Of course. It's, uh, yeah. That's amazing. And what's the last book you bought? Do you remember? The last book I bought. I think it was uh, Erasure. Erasure is the last book I bought, technically. Yeah. I think me too, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, what's the last book that made you laugh? The Britney Spears memoir. Did you love it? I was so into it. I was so <laughs> into I, it. I think I can say this much because this won't reveal anything. I know the ghostwriter of it. I oh, know the person yeah. that wrote it with her. There was a team. And he and I have been friends for a long time. So, And he did not disclose anything. So if Britney Spears' people are listening, he did not yeah. break his NDA. But reading it and listening to the audiobook was so cool to be like my – like I know the person that like worked with her on shaping this and to hear her tell the truth and need right. people to like help bring that truth out I was obsessed with I was obsessed with all the name dropping that like Ryan Gosling just appears out of nowhere yeah. as a kid yeah. like the Justin Timberlake truth bombs like all of that just really like was so amazing but just her like how she talks about her life so casually just made yeah. me laugh I was like this is ridiculous <laughs> wait is her ghostwriter secret because I know who her ghostwriter is too I don't, I don't know that's why I, I think can't it's never... public is it I hope I, my friend Chelsea Devontes does that celebrity book club pod, or now it's called Glamorous Trash, and she said his name on oh, her show. Yes. No, it is public. Sam Lansky. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I was like, I okay. know who it is, but I wasn't oh. sure. Okay. Yeah. I was like, am I spilling tea? Yes. In the New no, York no, no, Times. No. Screw yeah. it. We can talk about it. Sam Lansky. Yeah. Sam Lansky. Sam. Yeah. Um, I thought he did a great job. I thought the book was so good. I read it like the day it came out in that one mm -hmm. day on the audio or whatever and people and I was like oh my god you guys this is so good and so many people were like really and I was like yes yeah like, it's really pretty it's, it's pretty, pretty incredible and I yeah. love celebrity memoir as a genre like I read probably like five to ten a year 
And this one was by far my favorite of this year. It's just like, also it was so short. Like yeah. if you give me a five hour audiobook, chances are I'm going to love it. Like 1, I don't want, I don't, don't, Prince Harry, I read it, but 24 hours is too many hours for me. That's 20 too many hours. <laughs> so okay. True. Like Jada Pinkett, I forgot it was that 15 long. hours for Jada Pinkett. Is it Barbara Streisand's 48 hours? Yes. Hers is a thousand pages, but I at just... least with Barbara Streisand, well, I'm not going to read it. At least I'm like, you've been famous for so long. Yeah. With Jada Pinkett Smith, I'm like, boo-boo, honey, no. And also, what do we not know already we that you put in here? Everything. Like, this is we everything. Know everything. This everything. is, yeah. No, I don't. That's the last book that made me want to, like, actually commit a violent act against yeah. a human. Not her, but I've just heard. I wanted to go out into the street and, like, push a stranger. <laughs> like, I was just like, I hate it. Um, <laughs> what's the last book that made you cry? Last book, I think I don't cry, but I think I'm like a big non cry, which is weird. It's like once yeah. in a blue moon. So I don't I really cry either. It's just yeah, not there. But um, the Britney Spears memoir was really it's heartbreaking. You know, yeah. getting all the confirmation of how rough everything was for her, and and how we participate in how terrible it was without realizing yeah. that was really hard. So yeah, that was that was the recent one that really was yeah. like a uh, gut punch. Yeah. What's the last book that made you angry? I mean, it keeps like Britney Spears. Britney Spears. <laughs> it has the range. It just has the range because you're just, I mean, it's just what I love about celebrity memoir lately is that we're getting memoirs of people that I feel like I grew up with and I now mm-hmm. care more about. When I was mm-hmm. young, a lot of the memoirs that were coming out about old Hollywood, I didn't have that personal connection to. Totally. But now when Mariah Carey releases her book, Ugh. which has the best audiobook of all time. That was our first book club pick of 2023, really? our January book club pick. Incredible. So, so good. good. But when you're listening to that, you can also place yourself within her story. Like I was a I was a mixed kid yes. growing up in the nineties. She was coming to fame in the nineties, early nineties, late eighties. And it's just like you just see yourself woven into it. So um yeah, celebrity memoirs everything. And I, I found myself emotionally responding to those memoirs because they're just becoming more truthful these yeah. days. And like Serena I, Williams has one coming out allegedly this year or next year. Oh, cool. And I cannot wait. That will That's be the amazing. one I'm like, I just, yes. It's. I mean, hopefully, if it's a letdown, I'm going to feel so sad. But, like, I believe in her. I think um, it's going to be great. Where's a book that you read that you felt like you really learned a lot? Or the last book you felt like you learned a lot? The last book I felt like I learned a lot. I mean, Christina Sharp, I feel like I was learning a lot really quickly. The first, I'm trying to think. I read this book, and I actually, like, love the author so much. His name is Adafi Acaporo. He wrote this book called Asylum. And it's about uh-huh. his immigration process um, oh. to the States and his journey of being out it in Nigeria and coming here. And um, I had done so much reporting on, you know, immigrant experiences and I've been to, I've been to detention center, like all this stuff, but um, I'd never read from someone firsthand and it mm. just really like changed my life in many ways and thinking about you know ice and america and trump and his damage he's done to people because sometimes i feel like he's impacted my life of course in so many ways but i'm not the lowest rung on the ladder and adafi was and to see what happened post obama to him was just shocking to me so it's asylum yeah that sounds really good. Um, just for people listening, I'm linking to everything he mentions in the show notes. You don't have to write these down. But there's, a, <laughs> there's a whole list of every book, everything we talk about. Um, 
Are there any books that you have not read that you're embarrassed about still having never read? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I'm going to go to the greats for this and okay. Moby Dick. Uh, I have never read and have no interest. Yeah, I just don't care. It's just that's one of the most hated books that people say on the show. Really? So I'm like, I'm not going to read it. Too many people hate it for me. Like, it could be great, but it could also suck. And yeah. I just, I can't. It has bad vibes. I don't. It has I think like, I don't. Vibes. I don't want to read it. So I never talk. I mean, it's like one of those books that like there's a series of books that you read when you're in high school or, or middle school, yeah. and it's one of them, and everyone makes it their personality if they think they're very like smart. Like, oh, what yeah. About- Whatever. So there's that one. Yeah. Moby Dick. Do you have any problematic favorite books? Oh. <laughs> okay. Yes. But it's a kind of a cheat. So they're journals, but that are a book. So I am – get me drunk, and I'll talk okay. to you about this forever. I'm obsessed with the journals from Lewis and Clark. Like Mary Brother Lewis and Clark. The yes. explorers. The explorers that that are literally the reason for like – colonialism on the west yeah. side of this country yeah. which is why it's so problematic it's yeah. like this is like the guys that created the path through indigenous territories and ushered in the union soldiers to take out them and the mexican government so i'm obsessed with them they're so fascinating i'm so <laughs> mad there's not a movie made of their exploration because when you read the journals closely um it's very apparent to me projecting a contemporary uh lens onto a past subject that Meriwether Lewis is a homosexual and is in love with Clark deeply oh. and that the big reason why he goes west is that he's fired um by um I think it's Jefferson, no, Jackson, one of the, Jefferson or Jackson, one of those people. I'm not fact-checking. Someone old and white from yeah. back then fires them that was a president. He then is sent on this exploration, brings Clark because he really admires him. And on this trip, he is just deeply in love with this man and doing everything for him to fall in love with him. But this man is obviously in love with other people like Sacagawea and other folks they come across. And that Meriwether Lewis becomes really like gay in the most stereotypical ways. He There's one moment where there's a hailstorm and they take cover and some soldiers are with them and he decides to make cocktails afterwards with the ice that is the <laughs> hail. And I'm just like obsessed. But he's just also awful to so many people and he, he has a really tragic end that no one talks oh. about that he does die sadly by um, um by suicide at the end of his life. And so we like prop these two men up but when they came back from that trip like one of them was severely fucked over it <laughs> and I think it's okay. heartbreak. I have a few things to tell to get on the record about yeah. this. First of all, obsessed with this take. <laughs> Second of all, and people, this is how you know I'm sort of an idiot. I thought Lewis was a lady. I thought they were husband and wife. I thought it was Lewis and Clark. I don't know why, but I have done exactly zero reading about these people. There's like an era in American history that I truly do not care about it's like the Mm -hmm. 1800s before the civil war like Mm -hmm. that like 1830 to like 1850 couldn't be less interesting to me (laughs) and i feel like that's where apparently mr lewis and mr clark not to be confused with mrs lewis and mr clark Mm -hmm. that might be where they're situated but i I I sense that they were in love. I just thought they were a married couple. Nope, nope, nope. And that maybe many people think that too. Like they romanticize heterosexuality so much that they're like, oh, they were obviously a couple going. Nope, yes. two single men who went on this together. It's giving broke back. It's very broke back bro- it's the original broke back, and we need the movie immediately. The movie. I'm okay. Into well, it. produce it. Hello, I, you've got I mean, a Tony yeah, Award. Throw your weight around. <laughs> I know. But like, let's do this thing because it just like, I mean, not to spoil the end, but um. 
they famously, when they hit Oregon, um, they took the the trip backwards separate. So something happened oh. at the end. They don't really know. And then they all separated. And when they came back, uh, Lewis fell into deep depression, married, but his wife wrote a letter. Sorry, these journals are like, have, oh have so much gosh. going on. The wife wrote a letter and she's pretty much like, we never had sex and I divorced him. So she divorced him really fast and then he sadly passed away. Um, so it's like such, there's so much drama. And the end is like not fulfilling. Like it's not like this big like Love, Simon ending of a gay movie. It's not like they run off to sunset. Like one of them goes to marry a woman, the other one dies and that homophobia just blossoms in America. And the beginning of America's expansion was a tragic love story of a queer man and a straight man. I think it's just really fascinating. Okay, you have sold the shit out of this. I <laughs> cannot wait. We're all going to read it. Um, okay, if you were a high school teacher, what's a book you would assign to your students? I would say Gender Outlaw by Judith Butler. I keep bringing okay. up all this like academic stuff. I love, I love it. Like, I love these. And I think just because... Um, I think that's the book where Judith Butler, the theorist, writes that um, gender is a performance. And when I was a teenager, I needed to hear that when I did hear it the first time at like 18, where, you know, we, every day we wake up and make conscious choices. Like I put on the shirt to signal something to you about my identity. I put on these shoes, et cetera, et cetera. And that like, you have a lot of control over how you move through the world. And that does back into all these systems like gender. So the book is fascinating beyond that, but that was a big takeaway for me to be like, oh, all of this is constructed. This is all a social construct that we're living in. And I think if people understand that earlier on, they can maybe navigate it easier later in life. I love it. Okay, last one. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Read one book. Joe Biden. You could read one book. That fucking guy. That fucking guy. Um, So my my book I would give to our president currently is Light in Gaza, Writings Born of Fire, which was edited by a few authors, all Palestinian. Um, Everyone in the book is Palestinian. But I think it gives, you know, a lot of humanity that's needed greatly in discussing this conflict on every side. But this book is one that isn't very well known that people should read and know. I love it. I love it. Um, Thanks, Zach. Everyone. Zach's going to be back on January 31st, the last day of this month in this brand new year. We're talking about the novel Erasure by Percival Everett. We will have spoilers, so be sure to read the book with us. Come back at the end of the month. Um, You can find Zach all over the internet. I'll link to everything you talked about on the show notes. I'll link to the podcast. I'll link to his socials. Um, Zach, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This was just the highlight of my, my week. This has been lovely. Yay. And we're recording this on a Friday. So that means I made all the way to the end. It's like if somebody says that on a Monday, it's like, okay, bitch, it's like Monday. How dare you? You you have been through some highs and lows (laughs) and you won. So yeah, thank you. (laughs) And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you, of course, to Zach Stafford for being our guest. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Chantel Holder for being our connector on today's episode. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for January is Percival Everett's novel, Erasure, which we will discuss with Zach Stafford on Wednesday, January 31st. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening to your podcasts. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, will you please leave us a rating and a review? For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, Threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. 
This episode of The Sats was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirages. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 